Hi folks, this is Jack Spear, going with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November the 4th, 2014. This is episode 1460 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got a good one for you today. Returning to the show is Stefan Sobakayak of Miracle Farms in uh, Canada. And last time we had him on to talk about really the how of the, the development of a permaculture orchard and farm that he built. Today we have him back on to talk about, how, well, how do you market the products of a farm? A permaculture farm specifically, beyond organic production, both produce, poultry, uh, food and animal products, and other products that you can obtain from a farm. And if you have a, a, a hope to someday actually earn a living from land, this is going to be a very interesting show for you today. And even if you are not really of the mindset that I am going to build an income from a farm, when it comes to marketing, I don't care if you're marketing a farm or a video game, the same rules really apply, especially in the modern age. So tune in today if you have designs on building that successful farm But also tune in today if you just want to be successful in the marketing, anything from your own skills to any other product or business you'd ever put together, which is really a great way to be more sustainable and self-reliant in modern age. With that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultants. When it comes to carrying, most people that listen to this show believe in their right to self-defense. They believe in their right to carry a firearm. But a right also comes with certain responsibilities to know how to do things responsibly and safely and effectively beyond all other things. If you're going to carry for defense, remember that you, the operator, are the linchpin in the gun operator efficiency triangle. There's the weapon. We can just buy that off the shelf and buy a good quality weapon. It is what it is. There's the ammo. We can buy that. Training we can buy, but it's up to us to actually partake in that training and continue to develop that training so that if, God forbid, we ever need to defend life with uh, deadly force, we are prepared to do so effectively, responsibly, and to make sure that we come out on top at the end. There's no guarantees in life. All we can do is try to stack the deck in our favor. A great way to do that is with effective firearms training from Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com. Next up today, backyard food production. Hey, you know, today we're going to talk about how to effectively market the production from a farm. But what if you don't want to farm? What if you don't want to market the production? What if you just want to feed yourself? Get over to BackyardFoodProduction.com. Marjorie Wildcraft will show you how to turn your backyard into a food production machine with systems and procedures that will work for you from a tenth of an acre in the city to ten acres in the country to a hundred-acre farm out in a rural community. You name it, it'll work for the production of everything from vegetables to carbohydrate, protein crops. It's all there, BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next up, I um, want to remind you guys you can help support the show by joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that. Uh, it'll cost you about two dimes an episode to support the show. And uh, you'll also get discounts to great providers uh, and great vendors for things that you're probably buying anyway. Uh, you could do that just by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members or the member support brigade banner. 
Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you qualify for a discount. Just email me with service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I'll get that discount code, discount code back to you. Do that before, not after you join. And remember, this applies to prior service as well, not just retired. Uh, on that, we're ready to get into the main topic of today's show. Before I bring Stephen on, or Stephen on, uh, what I do want to uh, remind you guys, though, is that we're working hard toward the launch of something called Gen Forward. What is Gen Forward? I'm not going to tell you, but you can find out. Uh, you'll find out everything on the 17th of November uh, when we officially launch our Indiegogo campaign. But you can find out a lot right now. Just go to genforward.com. And enter your name and email address, and we are going to be sending out the pledge today, the pledge, the Gen Forward pledge, the nine-part pledge that will guide everything Gen Forward does today, and you will be able to figure out 90% of what Gen Forward is all about from that nine-part pledge. We ask you to keep it quiet, keep it to yourself. You can share the news that there is a Gen Forward coming, but leave telling people what it is to us, at least till the 17th, and then please go forth and tell everyone about Gen Forward Gen Ford is going to help mend families, and it's going to preserve the knowledge of today and the lessons of today for future generations. We're going to plant trees in hearts and in the soil with Gen Ford. Check it out today, genforward.com. And with that, let me bring on a man that knows something about planting trees in many different ways, Stefan Soba, Kayak of Miracle Farm. Say, Stefan, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Very good, Jack. Thanks for having me back. You know, the last episode we did, we talked an awful lot about the permaculture orchard, Miracle Farms, as you call it, and the how, how you built it, why you built it. But in the end, when somebody builds a farm uh, or an orchard, there's this thing called production that hopefully comes out the other end. I mean, if that doesn't happen, we got a whole other problem. And then once it does and it gets beyond what you would use for personal use or, you know, farmhand use, and you get to that point where you're actually going to make a living from it, uh, you have to actually get these things called customers to buy your stuff. And I think a lot of people maybe get like feel like, well, how do I actually do that? Because it's one thing to grow food. It's another thing to sell it. So w when you first started to actually develop a market, what was your initial biggest challenge? Biggest challenge? Uh, well, certainly just uh, getting customers, getting people to know what we do, how we do it, that was the biggest in the beginning. I mean, when you start, unless you start with a huge amount of PR or so on, which we didn't, uh, it's a lot of just one customer at a time, make sure you take care of them properly, and hopefully they'll call or tell somebody else, and then they bring somebody, and so on and so on, as the as the commercial goes. So that was really the, the the slowest part was getting to sort of a critical mass. Did did you run into this? I mean, this is a problem that we look at and try to figure out how you how you kind of skin this cat. As you start developing a, a, a product or a group of products, uh, you get into a point where you're trying to do market discovery, market development. You're trying to get customers, and you, you kind of have the cart before before the horse at a certain point where. You, you, you don't want something like if you produce an apple, it can only sit around so long and really be at its peak of freshness. You want to move it. Or uh, if you're raising pastured poultry, uh, they get to a point where you're at a diminishing point of return. So you kind of want to have a place for that pr product to go. But do you have, did you have problems developing the market before you had the product to go with it? Or how did you deal with that point where you had like the surplus? I've got to move it. 
Um, and if I don't move it, it's going to go going to go off. Yeah, it's kind of a two prong. Exactly that. You can, and I find most people are good at one or good at the other, but rarely will you get to be good at both. Uh, it would be great to be in partnership where somebody is really great on selling and somebody's great on producing. I'm not a very good producer. I'll admit, <laughs> I don't do so well, and in fact, that's hurt me in the past because. I haven't had a good product consistency from year to year, and that's one of the keys. You want to be consistent. You want to be able to uh, produce something, but produce it in a, in a consistent fashion. So that that, that is a key. Uh, you've got to get the two, not the cart before the horse, but that will always happen for sure. So... When you look at your products, I mean, people hear orchard, right? And they think, well, it's probably a bunch of fruit. Uh, but you actually said there's a lot more products that people have and harvest that they have than maybe they realize. Yeah, for sure. I, I think one of the biggest realizations for me was in the very first year when we all we had was the orchard, all we had was apples. And so people would come after 20 minutes. I remember a, a couple or a family came. 20 minutes, they had gathered up all they needed of apples. They had their bushel, their 40 pounds of apples, and then it was, all right, now now what? And that was the thing. They came back and said, well, what else do you have? <laughs> and so that was a big eye-opener to realize, wow, well, all I have is apples. And so that always kind of worked in the back of my mind to say, well, okay, well, what can I do? What can I add? And <laughs> that was where the whole thing of, looking long-term for adding a lot of diversity because in in our case we're not if you're right in town or if you're right in a city or if you're really fortunate enough to be on a very busy road then that's not as critical you will have people coming by you will have traffic going by we're not at all we're out in the boonies an hour from montreal so when people come out they've already made the sacrifice. They've already put in all the effort to come out. And if all they do is gather one thing, it's kind of, it's a huge lost opportunity. So getting a diversity is great. Um, location is great too, if you have it. And I mean, I, I, I see some people are in great locations and it's not going to be as hard a job to do. I'm, I'm not talking about growing something and selling it through a, a packer or wholesaler, that, uh, I, I think that's a totally lost cause. I mean, most of the time, the price they give you is the cost of production, so that's kind of ridiculous. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think that, like, when you, what you're just talking about there, what it makes me think of is, like, the most difficult sale you'll ever make to a customer is the first one. The easiest sale you'll ever make to them is the second one. Yeah. And if you've got them there and you have something else that they're interested in, then you said it's a lost opportunity, but I mean, really, for a place like yours uh, that's kind of out in the in the sticks, so to speak, and, and many of the the best places are because that's where you can afford the land and do the work and get things done and get on a scale that works. Um, it's a lost opportunity for the customer too, because here I've driven an hour, hour and a half to get to you, and I've done that for a bushel of apples. Well, I'm glad I have that bushel of apples, but what is the likelihood that I'm coming back in two weeks to buy more apples if that's all that's there, right? That's it. That's absolutely. So it's kind of think of, you know, just look at your own experience. 
when you go to get whatever, you know, you go to some corner store, you go to your local whatever, the grocery store to just get milk because you had no more milk or, or, or cigarettes or whatever it is that you end up going out for, it's easy to add impulse items. And it's, it's a lovely situation to have people buying all kinds of fruit on impulse. Oh, I didn't even know you had these plums. Oh, I didn't know you had pears. Wow, look at all these raspberries. I didn't realize you had this. Those are just, that's just freebies in, in the sense of, uh, you know, it, it's no effort, no added effort. And in fact, the customer ends up going, that's way better because I thought they just had apples because they talked about an orchard because most people hear with uh, apples. But when they then come and they have a whole range of things, then it's a whole lot more interesting. And it's, it's better for both people. So uh, getting back to what you had mentioned before about if you have too much stuff or, or having a hard time, I think in the beginning, just getting back to the beginning a little bit, if somebody is growing something, uh, I really like Joel South, and I took a lot of uh, lessons from him. We, I visited his place for once and... Uh, learned a lot from how he does things and, and his books as well. And he does say that one of the really important things to do is if you have too much, don't drop your price. Give it for free. And freebies are far more appreciated <laughs> than a drop price. Plus, then you don't, you know, people don't see that your price is lower. They always see your price as being at a certain high level, I would say that should be a, a goal. And if you have extra, if you have too much, like last year we had really too much and we were not stuck, but it was, we had way more product than we had members last year. So mm. we, it was like, okay, uh, it was August. I remember I thought, man, I was going to go on vacation and I see we have all this, Apple's going to come back. I'm going to come back from vacation. We're going to be totally swamped. So I realized, all right, well, I'll be swamped. Let's make it into an opportunity. Sent out an email to all the people on the mailing list because not everybody, there's two levels, people who are on the mailing list and people who are members. And so sent it to everyone on the mailing list, around a 1,000 people, and said, look, we're swamped. Uh, I'll give you this opportunity. There's a chance to get 160 pounds of apples for free if you're a member. And we virtually doubled our membership with that one offering just because we had lots of product and we didn't have enough people to to use it all so it's it seems like a way to bring in additional business if you're maintaining a customer database and a lead list uh it makes me think i had a friend that was a fishing guide and this is how translatable these things are and whenever he ended up with a day where he didn't have uh anybody in the boat he would just send out an email and say i've got an opportunity today to take somebody out and you'd usually get people that I can go, but I, I don't have a short notice. Like, I can't call up four of my friends and go to split the trip. But if two or three people said they wanted to go, well, then you could split the trip between two or three other people you don't know. And, and that type of mentality that when there's a surplus, make it known and maybe give it away a little bit less or add it to something else, shakes that tree and kind of makes those apples fall, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, your background was sales, right, Jack? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's amazing how we don't think of selling associated with farming. But if all you're thinking of in farming is producing, 
then either you're missing huge opportunities or you're just you're just there's unfortunately there's a lot of people who give other people the responsibility to sell and mm. saying if you're a partnership or so on but i'm saying where they do not want to be associated with selling all they want to do is bring it someplace and not here you know and whatever the price is so it was uh, booker t watley who made me realize you know in in farming you'll never you'll never make a decent living in any way if all you are is a price taker mm-hmm. you've got to be a price maker you make the price and this is what it is do, do you think there's a disconnect with people that don't comprehend that farming orcharding ranching is a business like there's so many people that want to move into that space now because it's different than corporate America but yet there's there's parts of corporate America that you have to keep with you it's it, it because it is a, an operational business that you're talking about with all of the components to a business and you think maybe part of it is that people that come out of some sort of a corporate sector if, unless they were a top manager of some sort They've only ever been exposed to certain aspects of a business instead of the totality of a business? Yeah. I mean, my experience has been the people who are most successful as a second career, I'm not talking people who are second or third generation farmers, the ones who are most successful are people who come from often uh, some sort of, it doesn't even have to be a business background, but a a totally other background. Mm. And then they bring their experience with them. That's the key, is if you think, well, I'm not doing that anymore. Now I'm going into farming. It's a whole di- It is different, but don't disregard everything you've learned. And especially if people had a business background, often they go, well, as you said, it's totally transferable. <laughs> people don't associate it with it being transferable. And unfortunately, and I find a lot of times... I see a lot of basically press where farmers are complaining. They're complaining about the price. They're com- well, you're complaining about the price because you have no say in the price. You're mm. producing a commodity. There's nothing wrong with it, but why just produce a commodity? If you're doing your job really well, if you're a good grower, and if you can distinguish your product, make it some way unique and show some feature of it that's unique yeah it's more work and so on but you can then pretty well not to a limit but you can set the price much more i think a lot of people don't use the the, the whole notion of distinctions and yeah, uh, I mean, if you want if you want apples or pears or plums or chicken for the price a supermarket sells then the customer needs to go to supermarket when you when you go to a producer and you're buying direct and you're buying high quality product, I, I actually think that it would hurt you to pr- be priced too low in more than one way. I don't mean just from the standpoint of not making a sufficient profit to stay in operations. I mean from the standpoint of as a consumer, if I go out to a place and you're supposedly doing pastured poultry, especially someone that's maybe done it as a homesteader and knows how much work it is, and if you have a five pound dressed bird there. And you're selling that bird for seven fifty. Something's not right, right? I know that that's not that doesn't work. That that doesn't make any sense. Seven fifty a bird. I'm not expecting to pay seven fifty for a bird like that. Seven fifty a bird? Does that even exist? Well, I'm saying in a supermarket you can go buy a, a cheap Purdue chicken for seven eight bucks. A you know four or five pound bird. 
So, but if I see a producer that's doing pastured poultry at that supermarket price, I immediately know it's not really no. right. It, it, that can't possibly be what you say it is. Yeah, well, that's that's because you're you're if somebody like that is associating a chicken is a chicken. It's not. You're not producing it the way they do. So why are you trying to compare yourself to them in price? You're producing an artisanal product. You're producing something that's got uniqueness. I think really the, the one of the things is learning about every product has a story. So learn what's the story. What is the story about your chicken or about your uh, raspberries or whatever it is? What's the story? Can you tell a story? And do you have an elevator pitch? Can you tell me in 20 seconds, you know, how is your chicken different? Or how is your raspberries different? And, you know, make a story to it. Doesn't that, I'm not saying invent lies. I'm just saying tell the story about why it is that your fruit or your animals or your plants that you're growing, why are they in some way special or unique? What care? What do you do that's different? It may not be different. It just, it, it's just where people don't know that story. They don't know. Oh, my God. I thought all cows go outside on grass. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that like like and I think there's a formula to telling a story, right? So every story begins with an origin, right? So as soon as you start to see a formula, it gets easy to do the 20-second elevator speech or the more in-depth story of your product. So everything has an origin. So how did it start? Then you move on from there to how it how it developed, its plot line so to speak, and then on to its conclusion. So I could do that with chickens like for instance, I might say these are chickens that are similar to what is raised in commercial uh, production, but we acquire ours from fill-in-the-blank with where you get them, and this is how they're different. These are a heritage breed of, of, of hybrid chicken, and they give you the same performance and size, and we bring them here, and we brood them this way, and we put them on our property, and in your case, they're grazed in between the rows of fruit. They're eating the same fruit that you're here to buy. And, you know, we process them ourselves, and then, you know, so that, that's a very simple story, but yet... Most you're right. Most people have no idea the connection to that story and what makes that special. And I think the interesting thing is human beings are hardwired to pass stories on. So if you sell somebody a great product, they will go enjoy it. They may come back and buy more, and they may even tell somebody about the product, right? But they won't tell the story because you have it. But if you give somebody a story, they will parrot it. They will repeat it, especially when they have folks over for a dinner. And they're serving them this. We drove an hour away, and this is the place we went, and this is how the guy handles his chickens. And in a sense, your customers are your marketing team, your sales team. And if you had a sales team you were paying, you'd train them how to sell. Well, I believe that we train our customers both how to buy from us and how to sell for us. And by telling that story, that person's not a salesperson by nature, right? They're not out to try to get their friend to buy from you. But if you give them a story, they'll find themselves selling. They can't help themselves. I love it. Tell me more. <laughs> hey, do you think that maybe like part of the issue here with this concept of selling, marketing, business development is somewhat tied to permaculture? And I love permaculture. I mean, I've dedicated big chunks of my life to it. I'm very encouraged when I go speak or I go take a class at how many young people are getting involved, people in their you know teens to, to early 30s. These are the next generation of farmers, producers, ranchers, orchardists, but they're very enamored into the 
fluffy purple part of permaculture, and it's almost like they feel that things like marketing, selling, uh, business, profit, these are like, like every other kid I meet that wants to set something up wants to do it as a non-profit, and it's almost like you don't even have any idea why you want to do that, and by the way, there's a lot of for-profit businesses losing money. Is there like this this dirty word association is a problem? Yeah, you're right. Uh, <laughs> the, sometimes you don't want to use the word permaculture because my experience has been there is always going to be a percentage of people who think, oh, it's permaculture. It's Everybody shares and it's free like some <laughs> commune. Uh, well, I'm sorry, maybe others do, but I don't. And so... There is, there is sort of that association in some parts, and that's okay. I think it's, it's, there's always going to be a percentage in everything, but I mean, if I think, well, what do you mean my utility there? You're not going to give me my electricity this month, you know? It's, yeah. So there, there is an element of it, and I think in permaculture a little more than in others, but it, I think, People are at different stages. Uh, yeah. If you're going to grow something, you have to focus at one point. You can't do everything well right off the start. I would say for most people, focus on growing. Focus on learning some of the fundamentals of growing what you want to grow. I don't mean you have to become great at it. Just just get your basics down. That's the first step. Because, And Joel used to say that, and it was really good. He said, you know, first produce for your family. If your family raves, then chances are other people will. But if your family goes, oh, Dad, uh, this is about the toughest piece of meat we've ever eaten. You know, do we have to eat this tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that Don't try to sell that if you haven't. You have to. I mean, I always looked at it. I have to be sold on it myself. If I'm sold on a product, I can talk about it. I can talk about it. But if I'm not, I mean, I've, I've worked in, in retail. And there were products that the boss would say, you know, uh, can you try to see it? I said, look, I don't. I think this is a piece of crap. I don't think we should carry it. If we sell it, please don't reorder it because I'm not going to sell this because there's no way this, you know, it doesn't do a service to the customer. So products are things that should serve us. And if they don't serve us, then why are we trying to sell them? And so you have to first be convinced yourself then your family, and after that, whether it's friends, however, grow it that way, grow it organically. And after a while, then, as you said, with you know your, your customer who comes and they actually rave about it and they attract other people. It's not the way corporations tend to want to grow. You know, they want to grow by advertising and, and selling you the idea. But organic growth for most things that are grown, if you like, organically, uh, makes a lot of sense. Well, I think that the the reality is most corporations would love to grow that way, but they're they're so disconnected from their market and they operate at a scale where it's not possible. So advertising in the you know conventional sense, your name on the side of a bus or blinking on a neon light or on a television commercial is what they have to do because they can't do what the small producer that knows every customer. Uh, can do and and the small producer that sells by acquiring one customer who helps them acquiring another customer does every major brand in the world is trying to figure out how to do that how to leverage social <laughs> media to do that but but that is actually the advantage of the small scale producer and the company that's selling chicken at a, a two cents a pound profit 
right, and makes the difference up by selling a billion pounds of stinky chicken, um, can't do that. They can't afford to invest in a single customer like that. The, the truth is that Tyson and Purdue care about trends. They don't care about you, right? They, they could give a damn if, if Stephen or Jack never buys a single Purdue chicken for the rest. All they care is that more people do this year than did last year, where... If I'm a small producer or you're a small producer and I and I, I lose one customer, I care. Because I want it now if I lose that customer because they're an idiot, I don't care. Right? In fact I'm happy, I'm having a party because that, that person is too expensive to maintain. But in general, if I lose a customer because I've done something wrong, I don't want that trend to continue. I'm very concerned over the loss of one customer if I've truly done something to let them down provided inferior quality, made a mistake. And the thing is, that almost lost customer that you salvage because you care can become your, your best te- you know, your best marketing piece because people don't feel that any company feels like that about them anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, we had a funny experience this year because last year we had such incredible abundance uh, most of our trees basically produced last year's crop and this year's crop last year. Wow. And so we that's why we weren't expecting that much, and we had just overloaded. We had trees breaking in half, literally just totally breaking in half when there was a little wind because they had 150 pounds of fruit in the top. Wow. As soon as the wind came around, it just snapped the tree in half. So we had a lot of fruit last year, and that's why we were able to give just, I mean, it was... We had to give. <laughs> we had too much. So this year, it started off well. We had we had our best year ever in small fruit. But when it came time, we realized, wow, there isn't a lot of fruit set on the trees. Uh, mm. There wasn't a lot. There weren't a lot of flowers to start. And then there wasn't a lot of fruit on the trees. And we were like, uh-oh, that's not too good. And so this year, for the first time ever, we had two people who were members who actually asked for refunds. So we said, no problem. I mean, we'll give you a refund. Uh, and one of them said, well, okay, well, next year, you know, uh, I thought, okay, well, the only thing is, next year, you won't get uh, an invite. <laughs> yeah, because you do a CSA, right? So that's a person that doesn't really buy into the concept of the CSA. Because the concept of the CSA is, as a consumer, I profit, so to speak. Right. In years of abundance, I get more than I paid for, and I'm risk sharing with my producer and saying, "In lean years, I'm still there for you." That's it. Yeah. Well, that's that's exactly it. I said, "Look, you know, this is this is the way we do it, and you know, I'm sorry if that's the way you feel, but when we have a lot, we really share the abundance, and when we don't, uh, sorry, but you know, we we already offered everybody who was a member this year a reduction for next year." Just because we said, okay, we, we didn't have, say, half of what we would normally have, so we'll reduce it by even more than half. So that's okay. Uh, we don't run, actually, as a CSA. That's, it's used in vegetable production. Sure. We run with the uh, Booker T. Watley system of a clientele membership club. So it's everybody who wants to be able to pick has to join as a member early in the in the beginning of the season or during the season if there's any room left. And then every time we're open, they can come and pick uh, at whatever the going price is. So we announce okay. what's coming up and what's the price. And 
we always try to have something free. So every every time somebody comes, if they want, they can load up on whatever is free. It could be herbs, it could be flowers. Yeah. Fruit. We had small fruit at the end of the season that were still unpicked. So we said, here, you know, pick whatever you like of the small fruit. And uh, it's amazing when you offer something like that free, how, how many people turn up. And so they cleaned it out completely, which saves us work. And they find it advantageous. And after a year or two, people realize, oh, if there's something that's in short supply and, and it's free, I better come early. Yeah. So people yeah. realize, I'm going to come in the morning. I'm not going to come at 3 o'clock in the afternoon if we close at 4 and hope to still find something. So, so it's kind of more like a Costco-style membership where I have a membership fee that gives me access to the pricing as a member. Because let's say I just happen to drive by your place, Stefan, and I saw what you're doing, and I showed up, and I'm not a member, and it's the middle of the season, but you have surplus. And I said, I want to buy some stuff from you. Would you still sell to me, or would you tell me, get in the back of the line, wait till next year, or would you sell to me at a higher price than your members? Yeah, it depends on the year. Like this, okay. we had no surplus. We knew that we had doubled our membership, and so what we were producing, we knew that the members should be able to absorb it. I always try to have a little extra, but not sure. a whole lot extra. If somebody shows up, uh, there are certain, like uh, Frank grows vegetables here on the on the farm. And so his we, we resell his items, okay. but he can sell wherever he likes. It's not officially part of our production. So we usually have some items uh, in terms of storage vegetables that are for sale. But otherwise, if somebody comes uh, for apples, the only time was like last year. We had, when we have way more than what we know the members can take, then we will offer it. So last year we had a little roadside stand set up and an honor system. So that worked well, actually. Really? We say there's honor in the valley because people just drive by, they look, nobody's around. And most of the time people would come and find us. I say, well, there's the cans there and the signs there just. Take what you like and leave me the amount of money in the can. And most people are kind of stunned because the honor system has gone out a long time ago. Sure. But we've never had a problem with theft or any anything. And uh, if people like that, you know, oftentimes it's we find we get the the uh, what do you call it when people are going home. You know, the 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 evening traffic. We try to have it full for the evening and also early morning because some people like to bring things into work. So we try to have the, the, the booth set up and, and filled for those times. And people driving by, they like the idea. They can just stop, pick up a basket, drop in the five bucks or whatever, and, and off they go. Yeah. So that's work. And that's I do it. I mean, <laughs> I'm growing a lot of my own stuff, and I'd still be like, oh, they're selling that. I, you know, I, I would definitely do that. Yeah, we don't have enough to be consistent on that. So like sure. customers that we developed last year who really like that this year they said, you know, well, sorry, it's only for members. And so that's good that it makes them inquire, oh, what is this about this membership? So we still have some work to do. We still need to have a, a good sign by the road, an explanation of how we function and so on. That should be all right there so that people driving by can, uh, in fact, what we now end up having to do is try to keep the gate closed anytime we're not open. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes it's just hard to get work done. We're we're starting something, and oh, here comes people looking for this or for that or for 
and even if we would just tell them sorry, you know, we're we're only open for members and so on, and just the the discussion to explain to them how it works, uh, it chews up time and it's good because it's it gives a first contact, so it's not wasted. It's just there there are things that people can inform themselves about, or even have pamphlets, for example, right up the road that would be useful. So we're we're still we're still tweaking it and learning about it, but the whole what you said, we really, that was exactly when the first time I went to Costco years ago, I thought, wow, that's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> that works great. I'd love to have this system. And that was, and then I read about that book there, Booker Watley's book, and I thought, that's it. That's the way to do it. Membership. And then what the big advantage, actually, of membership is you can take the time to educate your members. Sure. If we had open days in the fall and we'd have 1,500 people come by, there is no way in the world we could take time to educate people on, you know, how to cook or how to bake an apple, you know, or how to pick the apples, actually, and so on. So this way, what happens is people, we take a time, we teach them the first time, teach them the second time, and then we find that they start to show the other people. So... Sometimes, actually, if, uh, if I'm busy and people are, it's an open day, and so I'll say, well, actually, just, just listen to Jennifer. She knows how to do it. She'll take you back there, and she'll show you, oh, that's great. And the people who are older members love that you know, ability to say, yeah, you know, I know what it's all about. I can show you. Well, they feel important, right? They feel like, you know, I've been around a while. I'm, I'm part of the team, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's a nice system. We like most of all what we like is to be able to limit the number of people. That's really the thing because in the fall where we are, we're not that far from the main apple growing area. Uh, there's people in the area who will have two thousand cars on a on a nice Saturday. Well, two thousand for us is not a pleasure. <laughs> it, no, it would be a desire. I mean, it would be just chaos. So, no, we do the same thing with our training events. It's like we could book more, but then I can't give you the experience that I promised you. I can't give you the time I promised you. And frankly, I'm going to be miserable. I I like small groups, 20, 30, 40 people. I'm, I'm fine. You put me surrounded by 2,000 people, and all I want to do is leave. And if it's my place, I can't leave. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, you've been talking about the, the production from, like, the fruit and, and what have you standpoint. But you guys also do pasture poultry. Do you sell every product through that membership model, or are there some products? I know you said you resell the one guy's vegetables, but like the the poultry, do they go through that same member model, or are the, is that something you're more likely to be able to sell to a non-member? Yeah, no, I don't want to sell to non-members actually. So okay. We yeah, we do everything through the membership. If we have extra, and we never do with meats. Meats are, I mean, if we have any extra meat, somebody canceled or whatever, we could just put a, a quick, in fact, I can't even send an email because we would have 10 people looking for it at yeah. least this season. Most people who know how it works, they order in March or February, and they'll only get it in October, say. <laughs> so there, I mean, I all the time get calls, people saying, well, can I get some chicken? Sure, just join as a member for next year, order in February, and you'll have it in October. <laughs> no, we're October now. I said, well, yes. 
And so it's nice to be able to tell people, sorry, you can't have any. And it comes down to that thing. If you can't get in or if you can't have, you really want it even more. <laughs> the, the most powerful word in negotiations and sales and marketing is no. Right? No is an incredibly powerful word. When somebody's like, I want to buy it now, and you say no, it conveys a, a, a bunch of things. One, I am not desperate for you. I want your business, but I'm not desperate for it. Number two, I, I, I'm successful. I couldn't possibly tell you no if I hadn't already sold everything I had because I need money. And number three, I have quality that others want. And, and you, you'd have to go through a lot of words to convey that to a person where it can be conveyed very easily with a, a proper no. You don't, I'm sure you don't say, hey, stupid, you should have ordered your chickens in February like everybody else, right? It's not that kind of a knower. It's not like, get out of here. I don't want to talk to you. It's, I'm sorry, I can't do that because... And that kind of a no is extremely powerful. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, if you're going to get into growing, you can grow. You and, and I've seen people who are really good at growing, I'm generalizing a little, but they tend to be people who like to do that, but they don't like to associate with people too much. Like, they don't like to deal with people. <laughs> and that's, that's fine. We need good growers. And like I said, I'm not a good grower. A good grower to me is somebody who can consistently produce a similar product year after year. Na uh, nature and weather notwithstanding, because that's what makes, you can be a great, great grower, but your wine will never be the same year to year. Correct. There's, there's annual variations when you're dealing with weather. But if you want to sell your product, you do have to like people. You have to be more of a people person, and you got to know yourself. I find a lot of times, just know what you're most happy at. If you're, if you'd be miserable, and I have seen that. I've seen people saying, "Well, I'm going to do a farmer's market," and they they go, they set up a booth, and I'm sure you've seen it, Jack. You know where if you're going to go to sell someone, and they're sitting down and their arms are crossed, and it's like, "Don't bother me," you know. I'm here. I'm at the market, but. I don't want to deal with anybody. Well, sorry, but if you came with a box full, you'll leave with most likely a box full. Sure. People pick up on clues. I mean, body language speaks volume. So if you don't like dealing with people, be honest with yourself and, and realize, okay, maybe I should focus on the growing and leave that to my wife, my daughter even. I mean, put a... 13-year-old or a 10-year-old girl in a booth at a farmer's market, they'll do far better than you would if you don't like associating with people. In fact, they'll do fantastically well. So just look at, look around, you know, know yourself and, and be honest with yourself and, and focus on doing what you enjoy doing. Because in the end, if you're going to do it and you say, okay, so I sold $1,000 today, but you're miserable... Well, what's the point? I mean, life is too short to, to do things that'll just make you miserable. I'm sure you don't do the podcast grudgingly. You enjoy this. No, no it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, it's something I do out of a love of teaching, you know. But on, on some of the things we've been talking about, that, that's a good point. Like, so I can make my podcast consistent in that I can do one every day unless I have to take off to teach a class or something. 
or the occasional rare vacation. You've had an issue with this ebbing and flowing of production. And like you said, a good grower can uh, even that out some. But when it comes to things like trees, that's just sometimes how it works. So, I mean, I think of like peaches are the perfect example. In my experience, anyway, with peaches, I get a year that's terrible. I get a year that's okay. And I get a year where, like you were talking about the branches breaking. If it rains at the wrong time and the fruit takes in the weight, branches fall off the tree. And then where do I go back to? Crappy year, decent year, great year. And I've just seen peaches run that. And, you know, this is Peach Headquarters, Texas. I mean, it's like you, you, if you can't grow a peach here, you probably can't grow a weed. Um, so how are you looking at ways to even that production out, given there is a certain cycle, a, a cyclical nature when you're growing things like fruit that, you know, some trees fruit only on second year wood and how... How do you try to even that out to, to have a better experience for your customers? That's a very timely question because we're actually, that is one of the, the, the questionings for next year. Uh, since we had no fruit to speak of this year, I mean, if anybody who saw the, the film, The Permaculture Orchard, they saw that. And when I talked about abundance, I could say it very easily because it was overwhelming abundance it was just crazy abundance and this year was total bust in the tree fruit we had the best year ever in small fruit but we had a bust one of the key things i think is if you're going to grow grow enough variety of things so that even if one thing's a bust it's very rare that everything's a bust so if you have peaches then why not also have plums why not also have the chances are that they won't suffer the same fate all at once they may like our, our setup started because in 2012 we had a, a total frost it was uh, cold enough that it froze all of the blooms one night we had a very early spring start and the trees started to wake up in early may normally we were nowhere near flowering but we had the start of a lot of flowering, and we had one night that was minus 8 Celsius, which is about uh, 20 degrees. About 20 degrees. It's cold enough. It froze everything. I mean, yeah. the apples weren't even, they were nowhere. They were about 10 or 15 days from flowering, and they got totally decimated, the flowers. So that set up the trees to say, okay, we're on vacation. We'll just pour up a lot of energy. <laughs> And so what I should have done, knowing that's why I say I'm not such a good grower. Last year I was so busy, I, I just never had a, the chance to do all the work that I needed to do. I should have pruned more, uh, just more, so that I would not leave as many uh, branches and as many buds. That's so what you would have cut the production intentionally one year to extend the production in the, the subsequent year. Right. And that's something to be done, but that's a labor issue that you have to well, have it's, time. It's a timely issue, too. There's a time, yeah. and if I missed, what happened wasn't so much that I don't have, I would usually could do it. I just did not have the time in the spring when I needed to do that to be able to do it. And so. You never have time when you need it. That's. Well, that's why I say being a good grower. You can. Yeah. What are you focused on? I was focused on a lot of different things, and growing was one of them, but the thing with 
growing is there is a time to do certain things and if you miss that window you miss that window you don't catch it back you don't go back and and say oh well now it's time no that time is gone and so to be a good grower you almost need to know your calendar and book yourself into the key times for example in tree fruit in our area the key times is certainly for pruning so i would say two weeks of in march Make sure you don't book yourself and you have time to do all your trees, say, in March. That would be the ideal. And then in May, make sure you take the whole month off to focus on your trees because if they need any care, if they need a spray, if they need something, then you're there to do it. Mm. So it's knowing, knowing your key periods. Usually it's not all year round. It really is a seasonal thing. Like you've, I'm sure you've seen corn and soybean. Well, most people are very busy for six weeks in the spring. Absolutely. Six weeks in the fall. That's yep. their year. Yep. That's the time when the grain is in the bin. Well, if you didn't sell it this week, there's still next week. And, you know, there's even next month. And in worst case, there is in eight months, you know. So yeah. <laughs> that, that's a totally different situation. But they do know that they book themselves. They don't do anything. Uh, you know, and most farmers can, some, not most, but some can be pretty frustrated because some of the best harvest time is some of the best hunting time. So yeah. Like, yeah. Damn, you know, I, I need to harvest. The window is right, but it's opening or it's, this is the prime duck season or it's prime sure. deer season. So you've got to, you've got to focus at, at key times. And I, maybe we need a giant rat trap under an apple tree, and we two birds with one stone. But uh, seriously, though, like what you're making me think of is like this is something I've always struggled with. How can you even out production? So, like one way I could think of that in theory should work, but in practice I'm not sure would be something like if I was going to develop 12 acres and spread my budget out over three annual cycles of development and plant in three cycles of four acres. In theory, that should get me a situation where when one-third of the orchard's in a weak cycle and other one's in a strong, unless there's a major climatic event, like you said. The, the reason I don't know that that theory holds water is when I look at oak trees, for instance, and, and the mass that falls from oaks, and I know they say, well, the white oaks are biannual and the red oaks are annual and all, but it, I'm talking about total mass. As a hunter, and you bring that up, I'm always interested in the acorn drop because that is a big cycle for the turkey and the deer, and down here, hogs. Well, I can tell you that I know damn well that all these oak trees all over this area of Texas is started at different times and are different levels of maturity. But this year, there's acorns everywhere here. I mean, like, trip on them, fall down. And I know that, you know, my business partner, Kevin, up in, in North Carolina, raked up, like, 700 pounds of acorns in his suburban yard to take up to the pigs in West Virginia to feed them. So I know that that mast is heavy everywhere this year. So if that's a natural, like, you know, mega cycle, then can we really create micro cycles that, that break that? Or is that, that mega trend something that we just have to deal with? The cyclical nature, you got to think in the tree's perspective. We think of it, you know, oh, well, I, I would like it every year. Okay, what is the tree's primary purpose in life? Reproduce itself, period. period. Survive and reproduce. Exactly. So what's the best strategy to use? You've got all these critters wanting to eat my seeds. 
how in the world can this tree guarantee its progeny at least once in five or ten years? Well, that's simple. You make sure that you totally swamp and overwhelm them so that no matter how many, how hard they try, there's no way in the world they'll eat all those seeds. And so for an oak or any nut-producing tree, which produces such a huge reserve of energy in a seed, it has to rely on those critters to be swamped with food once every so many years. And so that's totally logical. And in fact, tree fruit can do that as well. Uh, because same with any apple or pear or peach or whatever, if if when you think of it, you think, well, you know, the, the deer like, uh, they like the flesh or the squirrels like the flesh of the peaches. No, the squirrels want the seed. Mm-hmm. And so... It's a fancy almond to them, right? I mean, they... Well, they'll, they spit the peach out and they want the seed. So the tree's you know, goal is not our goal. The tree wants to produce, and if, if the only way to swamp is to produce one year in three or four, then that's exactly what they'll do. They will do that for their own survival. Now, when you get into agriculture, and that, that was one of my mentors, he, you know, he said, what's... Uh, the definition of agriculture, he said, agriculture is bringing culture to nature. And I thought, well, that's interesting. He said, well, you're you're forming a partnership with nature. You say, I'll culture you, I'll, you know, cultivate, and I'll work with you so that I can benefit as well. And in that case, the tree then realizes. Uh, odd to say the tree realizes, but I, I believe there is that, because, I mean, I talk to my trees, and I know if I threaten the tree, I either <laughs> kill it or it will produce. <laughs> so I've seen it happen so many times that I know if, if a tree hasn't done anything for five years, and it's like, okay, listen, if you don't produce next year, I'm chopping you down. And next year, sure enough, produces a great crop, or it's dried right to the right to the root. It'll just be dead. So <laughs> we know that we want to form a partnership. First of all, it makes sense. Because if, for example, uh, let me see if I remember the name of that apple that you uh, you had mentioned last time. Uh, Anakatova? Golden Dorset. Oh, Golden Dorset. Okay, yeah. Well, if that apple tree, you know, that tree realizes that if we produce something or if I produce something that will be desirable and it's in an agricultural sense, my trees will be, or my genetics will be multiplied even more than if it produced seeds. Because now it will be grafted. And trees do communicate, we know that. And so if it can know that its own progeny is being grafted even, then it will try to work with you and try, I really do believe plants want to please us. Um, maybe that's you know a little esoteric for some people, but I've seen it happen enough that the plants really they want to please us, and I've seen it with flowers. Uh, if, for example, you really like purple, then oddly enough, maybe the alfalfa in your field will tend to be purple. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, <laughs> it may not make sense, but I've seen it. So you just need to realize that if you, once you form a partnership. 
that tree wants to make you happy, that bush wants to make you happy, and they will try to produce what will make you happy. There are exceptions. And so the, the evening out of production is really comes down to a partnership. Yeah, it's going to get scalped, or yeah, it's going to get pruned, or it may get pruned heavily, but it, it realizes that it's, it's a partnership that's going on, and it will accommodate you and work with you. I mean, there's more to it than that, there, but pruning is, is one of the, the aspects to evening out production. The other part is uh, fertilization. We haven't fertilized in our permaculture orchard for seven years. We put amendments when we planted on the surface, not in the ground, not in the soil, but on top. And that was it. That's the last we did. The trees and the nitrogen fixers, so on, we're counting on them to do the work. And we have seen they have done the work, but also we're wondering now if maybe now that the trees are in full production, if I add $500 worth of uh, liquid fertilizer, for example, or liquid seaweed or something, if that will just give the trees the little extra to even out from year to year, well, no matter how yeah. the idea is great that we don't fertilize, but if for my customers I know that I won't have a year like I had this year, that I'll have an evening out, then absolutely I'll do it. So Well, definitely. And I, I tell you, I think that you're, you're on to something there. It's what I call the grand deal, right? I feel that the humans in the concept of domestication, so we domesticate these wild plants, we make this grand bargain with them. I, I, I will tailor you to my needs and you'll deliver, and in return, I'll give you what you need to do your job and to survive and to procreate. And if you break that grand bargain, things start to fall apart. So we take uh, an apple growing in Kazakhstan that's 300 years old. You, you don't have to fertilize that tree. As long as you don't go in and screw it up, it doesn't care. It's on its own. It's been there 300 years. It's bigger than a lot of oak trees. It's doing its thing. Now we take uh, a, a variety of apple and we work with it through selective breeding and we come up with something we say, this is an apple I want to grow. And then we take and we cut a piece off of it and we attach it to a rootstock that we also grew from something we've chosen. And then we put it in a place where we want it to be. What you've done is you've set up this, this whole natural system mimic that's provided many of the needs of that plant. So even when you say you didn't fertilize because, well, I put a nitrogen fixer in. Well, you did. You chose to also place that nitrogen fixer there. So that was the way you completed that grand bargain with your plants, as you've said, I want you to be this way and this form and this shape and produce for me this way and grow in this line, and here's your irrigation, and here's your nitrogen fixer, and here's this other support species. When we take something and domesticate it, if we don't keep our end of the deal, it starts to fall apart because it no longer can do what it would have done on the mountainside of Kazakhstan. It would be just like if we take... Um, a coyote pup in as a baby dog, and we raise it like a dog. I can't just throw it out on the prairie by itself after five years of being domesticated. And if I do that for 20 generations and I make a new actual dog breed based on coyote genetics, I really can't just throw that animal out there. Uh, it, some of them will survive, but a lot of them will die. I've now taken on this responsibility to keep up my end of the bargain. I've taken you out of your element. I've changed you to my benefit and now I have to give you something in return, if that makes sense. Total sense. 
Yeah, I like that. The grand deal. It is. It's a grand bargain. I mean, it, here's this apple tree producing these tart little apples that you and I don't like. But birds eat them, deer eat them, hogs eat them. It has everything it needs. And we've said we want you to do what we want. So now we have to do. do we have to take the place of the the hog that came and ate and pooped at the base of the tree for nutrient. Absolutely. I mean, you just look at every animal that wants to eat uh, the branches and the leaves of the plants that we're growing. <laughs> If we say, oh, well, we're just working with nature, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me tell you, next year when you come back, because you thought that you just throw seeds and everything will grow, and then you'll come back and you'll just harvest in a couple of years, uh, you'll come back to a field of, uh, <laughs> of grasses and uh, forget about finding any trees in there. It just won't work. Part of the deal is protecting them. I mean, even our nitrogen fixers, which in one park we use... Uh, Honey locust. Honey locust naturally, I'm sure you've seen some, that it produces nails. <laughs> yeah. Well, the ones we use, because we don't want to have that risk and that danger, we've, so, we've chosen the, the thornless one. But the thornless is not, is not going to survive on its own indefinitely because the rabbits like it and the deer like it and everything else likes the branches, likes the buds, likes the bark. Even I was amazed. The ducks, our ducks, eat the leaves. Mm-hmm. That's a plant that's very desirable, and that's why it's had to grow a huge amount of thorns on it. And the reading uh, uh, Luther Burbank, he used to he he worked for years to try to grow a prickly pear that wasn't prickly. And he used to talk to the plants and so on while he was pulling the thorns out. He said, you shouldn't do that. I want to protect you. I want to help you. And, you know, I will multiply you abundantly if you just cooperate with me. And he succeeded in developing, you know, huge amounts of plants that were thorny, that were horrible, that were terrible tasting and so on, into making them something good. They all, those plants agreed to join in partnership in your grand deal. And so it is. It's a it's a partnership. It's a cooperation. It's working with nature, and uh, it's a grand adventure. It's a lot of fun. You know what? Like you bring something totally off the rails there to me to 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 go on a, a little bit about here. Uh, the prickly pear cactus. The fruit on those is awesome. It really is. And I guess this just doesn't happen in northern climates where you don't have a long enough season where it still survives. But down here in these southwestern states, if you just wait, the thorns fall off the fruit. And they go to almost a black, and that's when they're at their best tasting. Huh? Now, the, 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 the palm, the, the, the cactus leaf, doesn't. It stays armored. And it's almost like that plant saying, okay, now you may disperse my seed. Mm-hmm. And, and if you pick them early, the, the thorns on those fruits are evil. They're not big, sharp, mean thorns. They're little, tiny, hairy, embed in you deeply, can't get them out thorns. And so we use them in mead making. We make a prickly pear cactus fruit mead. And you just have to wait. And if you don't wait, you wish you did. <laughs> but that's, that's another example of an intelligence. The seed of that plant's in that fruit, and it's, I'm guessing, I'm totally spitballing here, but I'm guessing that that seed is probably not ready to to be ingested and defecated until 
that plant drops the thorns off of it, which is a really kind of a very cool level of plant intelligence. Yeah. Well, it's, it's essential. If it wasn't ripe, that plant, I mean, at some point in the, in the evolution of that plant, there were times where it, it lost the needles too early and those were eaten, but the seeds weren't ripe, so they didn't germinate and that genetic died out. I mean, there, uh, there is definitely selection pressures going on in nature. There's a bell curve of everything all the time. It's just we don't see the both extremes on that bell curve very often, but they're out there. They just either get eaten or they end up being the ideal one to survive. It's, Definitely. It's a fascinating, uh, that whole thing about how plants have worked. At, what is it? Michael Pollan had a great series on that, on the, the apple, the tulip, and uh, what was it, the potato. I mean, how those plants basically used us... <laughs> Yeah, to get multiplied around the world and spread, but it was a grand deal and it was a good partnership for both. Well, it makes me think of the old thing: Do we own our lawns or do they own us? Probably the most successful species on planet Earth. If you were to define success by getting somebody else to do and provide everything you need, would be grass. Grass, grass is amazingly successful, and I'm talking Bermuda, St. Augustine, you know, lawn grasses. Those those grasses would not do very well uh, on a prairie competing with perennial grasses with deep root systems, but with duty, dutiful little human beings who cut them and trim them and weed them and fertilize them, that stuff spread all over the, the developed world. Uh, and it is the, the fact that in some cases, like, that grand deal has actually been uh, maybe hoisted on us rather than us hoisting it on them. Are you, are you telling me that some of your listeners uh, still slave over grass? Probably. I don't know that many of mine do, but, you know, I'm a pretty small segment of the entire country, but I can tell you right now, you drive down the road from here, you'll see somebody out there with a spreader right now, because, uh, you know, they're getting ready for that weed and feed for the fall here. Um, I don't... I don't... I've never understood grass. I mean, other than it's nice to have a place to walk, but to me, grass has always meant clover and grasses and whatever shows up, you know. Um, my uncle had a saying, he used to say, if you can't eat it, sell it or smoke it, kill it. <laughs> In regards to his grass. Anyway, um, so back kind of on the main subject, you know, have you thought of maybe other ways that you can please a customer base? Like, and again, this comes down to a time thing, a development thing, but any type of value add. Because so, if you pick an apple, you have a certain duration to where you can sell that apple before it's not really useful any longer. But if you made it into cider, you could actually sell it for more next year because it's been aged in a barrel or whatever. Is there anything like that on the docket for you, or is there any advice you have for other people in that regard? Yeah, the first thing is don't pick anything. Okay. <laughs> main thing. I mean, I, I studied all the uh, financial uh, analyses for every just about every fruit crop, certainly every fruit crop, but also uh, a lot of other crops. And one of the things that struck me early on was, I would say on average, but certainly in fruit crops, 40% uh, of the cost of production is harvesting and containers. Okay. And that containers is non-negligible because if you are harvesting, 
That means you are supplying containers. You are packaging it. You are shipping it. And so get away from that 40% as fast as you can and let other people have the joy of sticking it. And once you wrap your head around that, I mean, I know people who say, yeah, but then people don't know how to pick. Well, that's the problem. You have 2,000 people come, and you can't teach them how to pick. So then don't complain that they actually break some of your buds or branches or spurs when they pick. Have less people and take time to show them how to pick. It only takes, I mean, I can show someone how to pick in, in three minutes, and, and they'll be a very good picker. But you've got to know the basics of it, and if you... You know, you don't take that little bit of time to show them, then they'll just think that they can just pull on the fruit and it'll come off. Well, it doesn't work that way. So the first thing I'd say is get away from picking. Don't pick. That doesn't mean it doesn't get picked, but you don't pick. Or you, your, your employees or your partners or however, let other people pick. That would be a huge, huge break. If you figure that 40% cost of production... Well, I don't know a business person in any business that if you said I can cut your cost of production by 40% would say, get out of here, don't talk to me. I mean, that's that's something any business would want to know is, is how to reduce that. And you're now I'm starting to see a, a, a piece of genius in your planning scheme that I really didn't think about before. And that is this uh, supermarket approach where you have, even if it's a pear, a plum, an apple near each other, do you have varieties selected that should come to be ripe at the same time? When you said that, I thought about it from a conventional production uh, concept that I'm going to send my, you know, I'm going to go harvest my fruit or I'm going to send my pickers out to harvest my fruit and that confines all the labor to one area. But another problem you would have with a U pick is people that don't know the difference between a ripe pear and a, a, a pear that's not quite ready yet. And there's multiple reasons you don't want that picked, but a big one with your operation would be if they pick a fruit that's not ready and they go home and it's tart or it doesn't taste right, they blame you instead of the fact that they picked it early. But if you have a section you can say, this week, go pick there, and then this section here you can pick this week, you solve that problem, right? Absolutely. I mean, I did it because that's the way the orchard was. It made yeah. a lot of sense because if I was picking or if we have a crew come in, it's easy. This, you know, this today, tomorrow, we're picking these four rows and that's all there was to it. And then I realized when I designed the, the permaculture orchard, I said, well, that made a lot of sense. Now, what's the advantage of running around picking one tree here, one tree down there and one tree? Why don't we just keep it the way it was in terms of there's a date? And we changed the, the planting design so that all the cultivars that are in that row will be in that 10-day window. And even if you don't have it, you picked and you pick it. Well, if you simplify it and say, okay, I'm only going to limit it to two cultivars of apples down here, so you still have a variation in your trios and so on. If people don't know what, you know, how that works, it, the film describes it all. But that that variation is still there. You still have a variation in at least two fruit tree uh, types of fruit trees. And that's the key, because right there, that will reduce your, your damage. It will reduce your insect pressure. It will reduce your work, and so on and so on. Get that right. And even if you have a crew come in, oh, what's the worst thing? 
Well, when we go through this row, we have to have two boxes for apples, and we have to have two boxes for pears. Okay. <laughs> How terrible is that? Well, if they don't need two boxes, they're not a good picker in the first place, right? <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> you know, there's a certain volume you'd expect from out of your pickers anyway, so <laughs> just being able to put them in two boxes is not a big deal. Yeah, I just mean two separate kinds of boxes. So you, you keep the cultivars together because uh, they may not be the same type. One might be a baking, one might be an eating apple. So you, sure. you may want to separate. But at the worst, you've got a couple of different boxes for each fruit. Okay, so and you can still have a commercial setup where you have a crew come in. But if you set it up that way, what you realize is you get people buying on impulse. They came thinking apple, and they look. And while they're picking the apple on the branch that's touching their hand as they're picking the apple, there's a pear tree right next to it. Well, this pear tree looks really nice. I wonder. And they may take one and try it, and pears don't usually taste as good when they're in the tree, but they may say, wow, that's still very good. It's as good as what you'd get in the store because mm. in the store they're not ripened either. They're picked green, really green. And so you can you still get that impulse. So as they're walking through, you know, they might brush up against the mint and then they go, oh man, it smells fantastic here. And, you know, I, and I've, I've supplied them with a container so that, oh, we can just clip some mint and take that. That would be great. We can, we have a dryer or we can put it in the oven or we can just hang it up in the kitchen and it will smell good and it'll dry up and we'll have these wonderful mint tea. And it's all this, impulse buying. I mean, how many times you go to a store and what do they put? The salty, the sweet, and the fatty things are right there for impulse. Yeah. Well, when people start getting an impulse of picking up plums while they're going for apples, that is a wonderful change. And I think people who who grasp that really realize, wow, okay, you know, I didn't come in thinking I was going to get this much, and it's lovely to see when they leave, and they've got a, it's like a grocery cart, you know, a shopping cart, their cart is completely full, and they go, I got carried away, I just couldn't stop, and they're giddy, and they're having a great time, and they go, I don't know what I'm going to do with all this, but it's just so much fun, and we've been picking, and we, we tried, and it's all so good, so why not, I mean, why not get impulse buying for something that's so healthy? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's better than impulse buying of ho-hos, ding-dongs, and Fruit Loops, for sure. Um, so one way we can uh, create a value add then, at the same time, without doing more work, is this whole you know pick-yourself operation. Um, don't you think that actually is a value add to the customer, in addition to all the things it does for you from a marketing standpoint, that... People actually enjoy it. Sure. <laughs> they enjoy it. And we had the, I remember one one family came and uh, we even have, you pick vegetables. I mean, you want to pick, you want to uh, buy potatoes? We have, uh, we have potatoes. It's a dollar a pound and you pick it. <laughs> well, for most people, it, it's a little bit of work, but it's the education. I remember one family, I showed them where it is. I showed them how to pick it. And you could see that the parents had no clue where potatoes came from. They had never experienced <laughs> it. But they were trying to show their kids, look, kids, they're growing right in the ground. See, that's where they grow, right in the ground. They're coming out of the ground. Oh, my God, look at all these potatoes in the ground. Well, I realized, okay, I didn't, 
I didn't say anything, but I was smirking because I was thinking, here, these parents are trying to teach the kids a lesson, and the parents are getting an education big time because they had no clue how potatoes grow. So when you make people make those connections, they are really thankful. And, and we've gone so far away from how our food is, how it's grown. And, you know, that comes back to that thing of every product has a story. Well, when you start to tell them the story of the potato and how you got it going, they, they think, wait a minute, I can go to the store and buy a 100-pound bag of potatoes for 10 bucks. So it costs me 10 cents a pound, and it's packaged, and it's cleaned, and it's picked, and it's in the store, and all I have to do is pick it up and put it in the car, and it costs me 10 bucks for 100 pounds. Or they can come and sweat at digging up 100 pounds, and, and they would pay $100 for that privilege of learning and, and connecting with their food. And you can tell, I can tell you one thing, they would not complain that the potatoes, you know, they would be, oh, you've got to try these potatoes. We dug them ourselves. Mm -hmm. And they reconnect with their food. People don't have much of a connection. What are you going to do? Go to the aisle and say, okay, here, you know, I picked up this bag of, uh, of a certain kind of chips, and, you know, I really connected with the chips. You really got to try it there. And no, it's, <laughs> but if they went and they picked the potato and now they went in the kitchen and they sliced those potatoes and they got the oil ready and they picked the best oil they can and they would make up a batch of French, uh, of, of chips. Well, they would be absolutely talking those chips up, up the yim yam. To sure. How, what a wonderful story it is. I think when you have a vested uh, piece of something, you treat it better. And when you treat it better, you get a better result. So people ask me, like, how did you become such a great cook? And my response is because I hunt and fished my whole life. And when you go out and you spend all day to bring home eight freaking trout, you don't make fish sticks out of them, right? <laughs> or when you spend, you know, 40 days in a row in a tree stand at 16 to get one deer, uh, when you when you bring that deer home and you process it, you don't just turn the whole thing into bologna. You have a certain reverence for what it took to get that there, so you want to do the best with it. And that's kind of what you're talking about there. You know that if I come to your place and I pick apples, I, I, I might not just go home and, and just see apples as something I have one a day to keep the the doctor away. I might start asking myself. What can I do with these apples? How can I how can I incorporate them into my my Thanksgiving table or what have you? And you start to learn to do more. And then what does that make you do? It makes you value the food more, so you value the producer more. So you you want to give them business if you can because you don't want them to go away. When we see like a new little like we saw a little boutique you know uh, beef jerky shop jerky shop open up, and I'm like we got to go buy some stuff from this guy because I want him to be around. And if nobody buys from him, he's not going to be around. You know, now, if his product sucks, that might be the only time I buy. But when you get that vested kind of partnership with your customers, you have a lot more strength. Oh, you said two words there, <laughs> Jack. You know that uh, we don't associate enough with food. You said respect and you said reverence. I mean, we really, we just don't have, we've lost that. I don't say we never had, because we definitely did. When people were more connected with their food, they had a respect, they had a reverence for the food they eat. Now, food is just, it, it's, it's just so disrespected. Um, I mean, I went through a round where I was really sick a few years ago, and 
I lost 50 pounds in six months. I, I say, you know, it's not the diet that I would recommend. Um, the, the eat nothing for six months uh, diet is not recommended. You will lose weight, but you will you'll hurt. And I mean, I was dreaming of food because I wasn't able to eat anything, and I was it was like food would become an obsession. And in that whole process, I really learned exactly that the whole respect of food and I guess one of the reasons I uh, the whole farm thing is is so important to me is I try to pass that on to people uh, we really need to respect the food we eat. I mean we don't realize what a blessing it is we don't realize how we take it for granted my parents went through the war the second world war and I learned it from them and I had it strengthened actually from you know through uh, through illness but we can't take our food for granted. Just because we have stores full of food, there's a lot of places in the world don't. There's a lot of families, even in places of abundance, that don't. Um, if anything we, we disrespect, we actually distance. We, if we respect something, we will attract it. If we disrespect it, it will, run away, it will go away from us. And it comes back to the whole thing of fruit and growing. If we disrespect the tree by basically being aggressive towards it, by you know spraying it with har really harsh and harmful things for everything that, that was trying to live around that tree, that tree's trying to almost run away from us. Mm -hmm. But when we start this grand deal where we're going to cooperate with it, it will feed us, it will nourish us, and it will nourish us in more than one way. We think, yeah, it's going to feed my belly. Well, your belly is just one part. Are you getting, you know, emotionally satisfied when you work in in your orchard or in your garden? Are you getting spiritually nourished in some way? Uh, and those, I mean, there's levels of it that I'm not going to get into. But uh, I mean, I really, I, I, to me, it's a Garden of Eden. When when I walk through the orchard, if I'm having a tough day, there's nothing like walking, you know, five or six o'clock in the morning, walking through the orchard. It, it's not the orchard that talks to me, but I mean, I'm spoken to. I can be spanked. I can be corrected. I can be, uh, you know, admonished. I can be encouraged. Whatever I need, it's there. And so it, it's more than just a place and a business. Um, it really becomes an extension of us and, and we're really made to live in a garden. We're really made to live in, in really in a garden of Eden where all of our needs are met and we look at it often as just the physical, as just getting us food and so on. But it, it's a grand deal, absolutely. You know, your word was perfect. It is a grand deal and, and there are so many levels to it. Well, and when you're talking about like we don't appreciate food, like the the I've seen the commercials of people starving, and you and you don't want to eat your Brussels sprouts. Your parents tell you there's kids starving in Africa, and we've all heard that. But uh, the 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 piece from that part of the world that hit me the hardest when I heard it, I was reading uh, Masanobu Fukuoka's book, uh, The One Straw Revolution. He was talking about when he traveled around. To, to, to or might have been sowing seeds in the desert where he was going to different places and trying to help them produce food. And he talked about this one place he was in Africa where they had these, you know, these refugee camps and that every day children would line up and be uh, tested to see if they were uh, showing certain signs of malnourishment and being unhealthy. 
and that the ones that were told that they were unhealthy were given a vitamin supplement and a cup of milk. And the kids that were told they were healthy would cry because they didn't get a cup of milk. And in this case, you had a person crying because they were deemed healthy, not because they were deemed sick. Wow. That should be enough to make anybody understand how great a gift food is because we don't get that anymore. And even people that are religious in nature and say grace or what have you out of convention don't actually think about, I think, enough the value of the food to the human because we do take it for granted. Yeah, we really do. I, I mean, that, that respect, uh, I used to go to a certain abattoir to get my birds processed in the beginning and I stopped because I found they did not respect the, the animals uh, anywhere near what I did. I figured, look, I put so much effort and respect into growing these, these chickens in the best way I can and when I take them and in their final moments they're actually, you know, what, what, what uh, tipped the bucket for me was uh, you know, one of the chickens jumped off uh, as it was going to get ready to go in the cone, and it jumped off, and so the guy took it and just kicked it, you know, up against the wall, and it's like, that, that's it. I mean, if that's the level of respect, and that's just what we see when we bring the food. <laughs> I'm sure there are people who have horror stories about places where, you know, listen, if they're going to put through a thousand cattle in a day or whatever, there comes a point where it's just a job. You're, there will be some people who have respect, and there will be some people who care, but a lot of them, it's like, it's just, you know, I'm just going to punch in and then punch out, and that's it. I'm well, definitely. There's, um, there, uh, Jill Saladin is a perfect example of a guy that says when it comes to things like slaughtering his poultry, you shouldn't do it every day. You shouldn't become desensitized. That's right. You, that if you don't feel anything when you take a life, you, you've gotten to a point where you need to go do something else for a while because we should have that certain level of hesitation and we should feel something and we should have respect you know, for an animal that gives its life essentially so we can eat it. Because that's, I mean, the animal hasn't made that choice, but and we've made it for him. But in the end, that's what's, that's what's gone on. This chicken is now not going to live so that I can have roasted chicken. It, it is that cut and dry when we really come down to it. Uh, back on the subject, though, real quick here as we get ready to wrap up, like your poultry, you do have to handle that differently, right? You can't have uh, you-kill-it poultry operation. There's a certain skill set required and all. So how do you handle that with your customers? Uh, we, I'm not sure if your podcast is, is broadcast that much in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> we have different rules here, but um, I mean, I we do our own processing. We've okay. done just because one we can give it the level of respect it deserves. Uh, the second is we don't lose anything. We don't lose feathers. We don't lose blood. We don't lose guts. It all it, it all returns to the farm, and then through composting. So nothing is is wasted in that sense. Uh, but uh, actually, we do have members who say, well, you know, if, when you're doing, can I come and help? Mm. We don't, we do, we do allow some people, and, you know, there's a, there's a learning curve, absolutely. So, sure. But we see that probably the best is you take a 13-year-old boy, 
and you let him see the process, I mean, he is absolutely fascinated. There's no gross. It's just like, wow, look at look at this. I mean, and and they do connect. If they don't say, oh, I'll never eat another chicken again, not at all. It's like, wow, I can't wait to eat that chicken tonight, you know. <laughs> so I think we really need to, there's different levels for different people, obviously, but we need to reconnect people with their foods. I think the take-home is really that. If, if people can get connected because they you pick, if people can get connected because they become a member of a farm rather than just going to a farm, uh, if people can get connected because they're impulse buying plums while they're there for something else, uh, if they can get connected because they saw how the animals are actually processed, or even if they just realize that, wow, okay, you know, I want to buy from somebody who's not taking it to these giant slaughterhouses and, and vacuum sucking the guts out of the chicken, you know? It's it's all those things. People are very ripe for it. I'm sure you've seen it, you know? There's mm-hmm. this movement. People, uh, we're, the, the age of secrecy is over. There is no secrets. I mean, people who want to know, you can find out how your chicken was processed in the big, you know, giant mega places. You can see how the chickens are raised and so on. I mean, there's always going to be some video come out to show the realities of what a battery chicken is like to our hens who, you know, run around and, and, and scratch around the trees to get the worms and to get the slugs. And then they, they reward us for their grand deal partnership with a lovely egg in the morning. So sure. That That makes me think of the whole 100% vegetarian diet. Well, all that means is you've confined it. If you let a chicken out of the door for 13 seconds, it's going to find something uh, alive and kill it and eat it. That's that's what they do. Uh, and with the, the chicken, I, I would say that if I ever had run into a group, you know, where you had a constant objection to the price of chicken, I'd just go buy a four-pack of Tyson or Purdue thighs. And when somebody says, why is your chicken X dollars now, I just take the package out of them and say, smell this. Right, because that's all it takes. If you smell, when you open a package of commercially produced chicken, the smell is not good. It, I would say it's actually one of the most dramatic differences that a person can immediately observe is the difference in simply the smell and the way the flesh and the skin feels of a mass-produced piece of chicken versus a properly cared for and properly processed um, chicken off the land. The difference is so evident, and the nose alone. I, I I remember the first time I ever got my hands on really good quality chicken, and went, it doesn't stink. And and then you start saying, well, how come the other stuff stinks? That's not good. Your food's not supposed to stink. Even even fish really shouldn't stink. It should smell like fish, not fishy stink. Well, just actually, I've probably been so long I haven't bought a chicken that I don't. I, I haven't noticed that smell, but I haven't bought a chicken for, I don't know, years, tens of years. Uh, let me just... It's, it's very, I think it's worse now. I, I, I think that, like, I, I, I don't know. We have selective memories, but, you know, I always was the kid that was in the kitchen and would get involved with cooking and stuff like that. Um, and I just don't remember, uh, you know, a chicken coming out of a package in 1980 stinking. And, and I can tell you now, if you get commercial chicken now, it's I, I refuse to eat it at this point. It it stinks. I 
And it has to be the processing. It really does. The bird itself can't be that bad in of itself, even though I'm sure it's not good. It has to be the way that they're dumped into the sanitizing chlorine poop juice that they they do this uh, to them. Wow, I'm I'm so disconnected from from that. I mean, I, it's a good thing we just finished our rounds of processing, and you know, when when we take our chickens out of the cooling vat, which is the last step of the process, I wouldn't drink the water, but we can absolutely see three feet down in the water. I mean, the water is not foul, and, and yeah. you know, it's a little tainted because there's still some blood coming out of the bird, so it takes a little rosy tint, but you can see right down to the bottom. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I know that every time they put some kind of horror story report, I know my phone starts to ring, uh, and people, oh, I saw, can I buy, sorry, you can't buy chicken. I mean, I'd love to send yeah. you some, but you're not a member, and all our chickens are bought up and are ordered well in advance, and and that is a strong way for people to. You realize they they will make a change, and most people don't can't wait. Um, so I'm very good for other people who do have product. I mean, I refer. Jeez, uh, I probably referred people to every good grower around that I know that I would trust their product. So. I do a lot of that, and I'm, you know, if, if people, and I know that people recognize that if I'm willing to tell them where to go buy it, they'll take my word for it. The grower is pretty happy with it, but people will come back to me in the end. So, let me just give you one last story about ducks. Uh, just a little bit of you were saying about how they smell the chickens and so on. We just had a, a pickup of our chickens from uh, they're frozen, so people come pick and. And people had ordered duck, but we didn't have enough orders this year to make it worthwhile to do a run, to do a production of them. So we didn't raise any, but people had, some people had ordered the ducks anyway. So I sent them an email to say, look, this is, we didn't get enough orders, so we didn't raise ducks this year, but we still had some ducks left from 2012. Now, if you would say 2012, wait a minute, that's two years old. You can't sell meat that's years old. The difference is, I mean, when they're raised in a certain way, I know the dates they put on, yeah, they can go bad in whatever, three months or six months. If they're floating in a fecal soup before they're put in the package, uh, yeah, I don't even know if you'd want to wait three months. You know, I don't know why you'd want to eat them anyway, but I mean, the, the three months, I'm sure it is. There's so much stuff on there trying to, you know, decay that food that even in the freezer it will go bad. Well, our ducks, we've been eating them all summer still, and, and uh, we know that ducks are different from chickens because they have such a thick layer of fat that it's like a whale, basically. You know, it's, it's totally protected from the cold in the freezer. So you take that bird out of the freezer, it's been there for two years, and you realize, my God, there's no freezer burn on it, first of all. Mm-hmm. When you defrost it, it doesn't smell in any way, and I would challenge anybody to even say, "Oh, that that duck has been around for a while." <laughs> they instead they go, "Oh man, that is so good." And it's like, "Yeah, but it's also been around." No, how can it be? <laughs> I you know I don't even think about it, but you're right. I mean, we just cooked our last two uh, pastured chickens from last year, like two weeks ago. Yeah, it was like cooking 
chicken it had been it's a little different when you freeze something it is a little different than it's fresh but it, it could have been if you would have said how long has it been in the freezer i would have said a week a month i i don't know i it it, it didn't look not fresh it was you know properly processed and, and properly cared for um i never really thought about that because i watched my ducks file by in the rain outside and think yeah ducks are good eating <laughs> but uh, anyway, man, I appreciate you being on with us again. Can you tell people how they can find out more about you and the work you do? Sure. Uh, if they want to look up just some of the basic information, we'll be reworking the website. It's uh, miracle.farm. So it's Miracle Farms, but our website, we took a TLD that's actually .farm. And if anybody out there has a farm, I would recommend highly you consider getting instead of getting a dot com why not get a dot farm right away it identifies your place as a farm so they are available and so we got miracle dot farm as our website for the farm uh, if anybody wants to find out how we produce in the in in the permaculture orchard fashion uh, our film is uh, the permaculture orchard beyond organic and that you can get at the permacultureorchard.com and I actually saw this week, which just came out on uh, Amazon as well. Uh, so it's a permaculture orchard uh, film, and it's at permacultureorchard.com. As well, if anybody in your audience is uh, interested in permaculture, I'll be at the Permaculture Voices 2, which will be in San Diego in uh, March. So as well uh, my book will be ready by then that's my deadline I'll have to have it all ready so if anybody's interested in the book as a follow up to the film uh, just send me an email at miracle.farm in the contacts and uh, I'll put you on the list for getting a, a book when it's ready very cool I didn't know you were going to be at uh, PB2 I'll be out there I'll get to meet you that'll be awesome yeah, yeah we will we'll have to catch a supper or something together yeah definitely Anyway, I appreciate you being on the air with us again, and uh, folks, especially on the uh, the video, the Permaculture Orchard, if you haven't got it yet, I highly recommend it. I learned a lot from it, and uh, generally, if I can learn from something, it's, it's pretty good quality stuff. So, uh, again, uh, Stefan, thank you for being with us today. You're most welcome, Jack. Anytime. And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Stefan Soba Kayak, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
revolution is 